Our guest today is currently running for district attorney. If you've driven around Humboldt, I can guarantee you've seen her signs. It seems like that purple and gold is everywhere, which is a good sign. She is incredibly experienced. She's been a part of the DA's office for 20 years, and she is currently serving as the assistant district attorney. I really enjoyed sitting down and talking with her. It is easy to see just how passionate she is about her job and just how much she cares. I'm going to let her take it from here, so please give it up for Stacy Eads. For people that don't know you, do you want to say how long you've been working for the DA's office? Oh, for sure. I've been there for over 20 years. So I started in 2001. It was my first out-of-law school job. And I've been oh, there Oh, right since. into the office. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. that's cool. Did you know that's what you wanted to do when you got into law? Not at all. Yeah. yeah. No. I, um, I'm actually from Humboldt County. And okay. so I thought I wanted to go into more like land use, environmental, sort of make things work you know, for folks, bring everyone together, see how we could kind of meet in the middle, because I just always saw that sort of conflict, you know, between the use of resources and wanting to, you know, respect our environment and all of that. So I thought I was going to do that type of law and more transactional. Um, And I also focus on international law as well during law school. Everyone in law school has to take like criminal law and constitutional law, criminal procedure, evidence. Those are kind of basic core classes, which of course I took and I really liked them and loved it. And um, and then I knew after law school that I wanted to try to come back to Humboldt County and begin a career. And so I interviewed a few different private firms and then I also interviewed uh, the DA's office. So and it was with Terry Farmer. He was the DA at the time. And Maggie Fleming was one of the senior prosecutors, along with uh, Worth Dykeman, Rob Boyd, um, Max Cardoza. And so I was interviewed by kind of a, a group of senior prosecutors. And I think it was that afternoon that Terry made the call to me and offered me uh, the position, uh, which wouldn't have begun, you know, for like a month and a half later. So I started interning at the office to sort of learn the job. But I had no plans to be a trial lawyer whatsoever. I, you know, that didn't seem to be something that would fit with my nature. Um, but it's been the perfect fit. And I just can't imagine, you know, doing anything different. Oh, how funny is that? Yeah. Yeah. Environmental law to criminal law is kind of a big turn, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I studied uh, biological sciences. So I have a BS in uh, bio from Davis. Okay. So I have a, oh, that's where you did your undergrad was yeah, Davis. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I have a little bit of a different background than most criminal lawyers. Wow. Yeah. And never looked back. Got in at the DA's office and just, it fit perfectly. Yeah, it really did. I, I love my work. And um, I think that having the first year or so, I, I did kind of just general misdemeanors like most folks do when they begin a, a DA's office. And then I uh, quickly transitioned into the juvenile justice program so that uh, I was the only prosecutor handling those cases. 
And so I was able to gain a lot of exposure to all different types of crimes and then also work with a lot of other um, entities, the probation department really closely, child welfare services, service providers, uh, and then the courts. And it's a little more of an intimate court setting. It's you know confidential, so mm-hmm. it's kind of the closed courtroom. But then also I, I got to work very closely with victims and helped to remind the court and all the parties that, you know, there's more to the what's happened here than just, you know, the interests of the offending youth, but also, you know, being a voice for the victims. So that was, you know, really rewarding early on and also gave me this great opportunity to kind of delve into um, the issues that kind of rise to the level of making it so some kids are higher risk of going into the criminal um, lifestyle, if you will. And, uh, and just to learn a lot more about what happens behind closed doors in some of the homes here in Humboldt County and a lot of the challenges that our youth face. And, uh, and also getting to see a lot of kids that kind of rose beyond that and uh, were able to get some skills that allowed them to move on and some go to college and, you know, just have these tremendous uh, accomplishments of course, not every story is a success story, but yeah, unfortunately, each, right? yeah, each one that we had, it was like, you just really wanted to hold on to that. And, um, yeah, so I, I remember quite a few of those and that was your first year you were working on juvenile cases. Um, that was like shortly after about a year into, into my it. career. Okay. So I did that for about 13 years. I did it for a long time. That's gotta be yeah. hard working with juveniles doing that and prosecuting those cases. Um, yeah, a lot of it was hard. I mean, there was a lot of, you know, tragedy and trauma, you know, that you're ex- exposed to just mm-hmm. being in the system and the court really would delve into the the lives of the juvenile. And um, so we learned a lot about, you know, who their care providers were or weren't and, um, you know, ab- abuse history, substance abuse, um, you know, whether their parents might be incarcerated uh, maybe their parents, you know, were deceased. A lot, a lot of tragedy that's mm-hmm. in the lives of some of these young folks. Not all, you know, there were some offenders that just made bad mistakes and they're, you know, just, and had pretty, you know, healthy home environments, you know, that happens of course as well. Um, but it was just a really great opportunity to sort of see, the reality of the challenges that a lot of people face and to be able to take those into consideration and figuring out how to address these circumstances to help prevent, you know, the criminal conduct from occurring again, enhancing public safety, and also, you know, get the kid on the right track, get them in school. Um, You know, when I (laughs) grew up here, I thought, like, um, continuation school and when kids got in trouble that, you know, oh, my gosh, they must be having to go to school like at 6 a.m. until like 9 p.m. or something crazy like that because yeah. they're really in for it now. And and then I learned it was quite the opposite. You know, it's like the, the schools weren't able to address their behaviors. And so it sort of resulted in the kids having absolutely no supervision and potentially being out on the streets. And Are a lot of those kids, when they get into the system like that, do they end up being repeat offenders? So it's one crime and then it leads down that that path of just continuation? Um, I, I don't know exactly that I would say a lot, but certainly there were uh, young people that graduated into the adult system. And, you know, some of the crimes were also very serious, just as serious as ad- adult offenders in terms of the underlying conduct. I mean, my first homicide was a uh, two young men that killed a homeless man. And, oh, wow. 
Um, so, you know, and I also had a number of um, sexual assault, sexual molestation cases. So older kids um, sexually assaulting uh, younger children. Uh, most of my trials that I remember that I had uh, in juvenile court, many of them involve sexual assault um, allegations and charges. Also, I had a lot of, you know, like fights at school or, you know, kind of um, assault with a deadly weapon type cases, burglaries, things like that. But the um, child molestation charges and uh, those, those happen. And oftentimes those are more contested. And so it, it makes a lot of sense that those would be the ones that would go to trial. But That is not what I was, that's not what came to mind when you said juvenile cases. I was thinking petty theft or fights or, you know, these smaller crimes. You don't think of homicide and, and sexual assault as, as fitting in to, you know, kids committing these crimes. Right, right. Uh, so all of the um, cases that um, a law enforcement officer would write a report on, those first go to the juvenile probation department, and then they would go from there uh, to the district attorney's office, and I would then review them. And so there was this whole filtering process. So officers out on the street might use some degree of discretion in, in terms of how they handle the, the incident. And then uh, if it's a little more, you know, higher level of seriousness, then it might go to the probation department. And then they have a lot, of, they had a lot of discretion as well in terms of what charges they would then refer to uh, the district attorney's office. So what ended up on my desk was typically the more serious offenses or kids that just um, were repeat, repeat offenders. offenders, I guess, you know, I would call them different terms, but um, what would you call them? I, I, I. Don't necessarily even like using the word offenders, and it's like a, a whole different terminology for kids. That we don't even say it's criminal. It's more like you know behavior that would be criminal conduct if, because it's just sort of this movement to like not like um, criminalize kids, but sometimes it's sort of a bit counterintuitive because maybe it's the behavior that's really at issue and not how the adults in charge respond to it. Which was sort of a, um, a rub for me in my later years, actually, of working in the juvenile justice system because fewer and fewer kids were even um, going through the system, not because they weren't engaging in the same kind of criminal conduct, but because sort of the, the trend um, based upon studies and you know, evidence-based research um, that it was better to not immerse them in the system, uh, maybe because you might expose one child to a more serious offender, and you know, and um, but it was a little problematic in my mind that kids might, you know, engage in criminal conduct and then nothing would happen because they might not be having any sort of consequences. Yeah, there in are the no home, repercussions for the no actions. No repercussions. Nothing. The schools' hands are tied, oftentimes, you know, and and so I think accountability is really important, and I think consistency is really important. I think those concepts certainly are um, applicable to helping our youth, you know, find boundaries and sort of help them understand, you know, our social norms and you know how we can respect one another. Basically, mm -hmm. you know, has that continued that decline in you know, wanting to use this safe language around juveniles and not wanting them to go into the system, depending on the crime, or has that continued or furthered, I guess, or has there been pushback on that? Um, it's continued, I would say, probably even further. So um, when I first started in the juvenile justice program, there was the California Youth Authority, which was basically prison for kids. And so it had, you know... That would be like juvenile hall. 
Right. Well, or, uh, it's more so juvenile hall would be the equivalent of like the county jail. Okay. So, um, but kids wouldn't be there in theory for a long term period. Um, but California Youth Authority was uh, for all counties um, of juvenile offenders for like the more serious offenders or uh, offenders where all of the county resources had been exhausted. So the county had tried to address the, the behavior of the youth, try to provide services, whatever intervention the county might have available to them. And if that didn't prove to help the child change their behavior, then they might ultimately uh, be committed to the California Youth Authority. Okay. And or back in the day, uh, it might have been because of the underlying offense. So homicide, if they if they weren't tried as an adult, then maybe they would uh, be committed to California Youth Authority or under some circumstances. It gets complicated. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so I'll stop. No, but, no, no. It's, um, it's interesting hearing that that thought process, right? Because there's really two camps. The camp of, you know, you need to hold these kids accountable so that they don't think that these actions are okay, right? And continue down that path. But you also, you almost want to take into account that they're just kids. And sometimes you're a product of your environment. You don't want to ruin a kid's life because of a mistake they might have made when they were 13 or 14. Right, right. And I think that um, maybe the better approach is taking all of those concepts together, you know, and and so, but, you know, back to like kind of the, the trend. So, I did have the California Youth Authority then. There were things that happened there that, you know, were objectionable and, and there were lawsuits and there were a lot of changes that were made and a lot of reform within that system. And, you know, fast forward to where we're at today, basically the California Youth Authority that it then changed its um, name to Division of Juvenile Justice, I think. That's the top of my head. I might have that wrong. DJJ. But um, it's now essentially closing. So, so that's no longer an option for uh, counties where it, and, and it can be particularly challenging for the more rural, smaller counties where there's limited resources, but maybe just as serious of offenders um, in terms of how they can help, you know, wrap around those services. So now it's been transitioned. So it's back to the counties having the um, ultimate responsibility for uh, juvenile offenders. And the laws have also changed as well, um, reducing the amount of discretion in situations where the district attorney's office can file on juvenile offenders and treat them as if they were adults. So that's um, extremely limited and much uh, lower possibility. And basically, it's always going to be up to the, to oversimplify, now totally be in the hands of the court if we petition them and if certain circumstances um, apply, so age and types of I was going to say, is that an age restriction? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And severity mm-hmm. of crime and things mm-hmm. like that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's a very small um, group of um, juveniles that potentially could even be eligible for those types of commitments. And again, it's no longer a state-operated um, facility. It's up to the court for to decide things to, like that. Yeah, the court to decide and then... Uh, there won't be the, you know, prison for kids that's mm-hmm. just gone, basically, is, is what's happening. Um, Does that result in longer stays at... So juvenile sit, hall juvenile will become... Hall yeah, so, like so the county has to... And, and the county's been working on that and the probation department really... Um, to have the appropriate um, services and sort of a um, program that would be available to offenders that historically would have been sent 
um, you know, to the California Youth Authority years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's it's a um, whole different um, process, and and at the end of the day, always kind of keeping the offenders local is is what's happening. Have you noticed more juveniles are inclined to offend again because now there's not that next tier of okay, we're going to send you to this place because your actions are indicative that this is becoming a pattern? Yeah. So that's a really good question that I don't know the answer to, Mm. like whether the actual, uh, you know, type of conduct that we would call crimes if they were adults, um, whether that's increased in light of the the different type of a response by the probation department. And I don't I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Um, what I do know is like from my experience and when I was doing the juvenile, uh, justice cases is that, um, even though I was the one that was, you know, we need to have consequences here. You violated your term of probation or, you know, you, I expect X, Y, and Z to happen. And even if I was saying, um, to the juvenile offenders, like, okay, we're going to give you a chance. You can, you know, um, return home on house arrest rather than spend another, you know, four weeks at juvenile hall. This is just for example. Mm-hmm. And, um, but if you violate your terms again, I'm going to ask for that four weeks at juvenile hall the next time you come back. And I, I would make note of that and I would follow through. Likewise, so if the kid did violate, I would ask for the four weeks in juvenile hall. But if the if the child did not, you know, and they did well, I was more than happy to to commend them for that as as well. So, and I would get feedback oftentimes uh, because I was there for so long. They really appreciated like the consistency, and they knew what I was going to say, you know. And the kids would kind of peek over, you know, <laughs> and um, and I have um, long lasting relationships with a lot of the defense attorneys that also worked in the juvenile justice system and the probation officers and. And so we kind of all knew what our roles were and worked together for that common goal of trying to serve the best interests of the of the juvenile. And, you know, and then I, have, of course, have to look out for the protection of the community and mm-hmm. ensure that the victims have a voice. Was it hard prosecuting those cases in the sense that you came, you had a first-hand experience of seeing what kids are capable of? I mean, I feel like it's different when you see it from adults because you, you recognize that adults are capable of extreme acts of violence or of these sexual acts but when you see it from a kid that's gotta it's gotta have a little different kick to it i would imagine absolutely and some you know and again i think what helped in terms of how i um dealt with that like on a personal level of course it's really important to have really good boundaries Mm -hmm. on all, all of this um but knowing that sometimes that intervention through the court, you know, would get attention for that particular child and hopefully get oftentimes, you know, they, these kids weren't going to school or, you know, there were other issues beyond um, whatever the criminal conduct was. And, and I think that helped me deal with the overall situation as well, just kind of knowing that we're all here to serve their best interests and maybe there will be services in place that can kind of help the family as a whole. But yeah, it was hard at times to look over and see, um, you know, kids and and uh, one of my colleagues would always reference this. was like, yep, his feet didn't even touch the floor. So it's like their little legs just swinging, you know. That is and, crazy. Um, but, you know, I, I recall, I think the youngest that I ever filed 
youngest age I ever filed any charges, and this is um, were these two little boys who were um, in a school field during the weekend, unsupervised, and it turns out that they had um, uh, attempted to break into the, a classroom, and they were going to break into the classroom so they could kill the hamster, and they were then burning each other's hair out in the field, and they had lighters. And so how many red flags, you know, do you need? And what I do remember is of those two boys, one, uh, you know, he, he was arraigned on his charges, and um, and there was some intervention, and he never came back. Uh, the other little boy, he had, you know, reoccurring incidences and challenges throughout the rest of his life. So, um, you know, and... It, it was fine. Nobody hurt them, you know, and but it was important that folks take a good look at what was happening for those two two boys. So, but yeah, it was wow. hard. Wow, yeah, I would yeah. imagine. It, I would imagine it had a very big impact on your career, especially where, you know, you walked in and that's where you started. Is that common? Do most, um, do most lawyers that go into the DA, do they start with juvenile cases as a way to kind of build up? No, lots of people, um, it depends on the office, you know, but um, lots of folks are able to kind of have their entire career without doing the juvenile justice portion. And it's not really the place for everyone. I think that it's sort of a a unique um, uh, area of practice for prosecutors, in part because there isn't that, um, you know, out in the public, you know, you're not I don't. I didn't have juries. It was really with the courts and the families, and you know the defense attorneys. And it's kind of a, a little. It's its own little world, if you will. And, uh, but I think it's really good and important exposure for all. Um, and it is a little bit unusual to do it for as long as I did it. I loved it, and um, I you know, one of the careers that I considered, you know, of course, was, you know, going into teaching and working with kids. And so even after I came out of the juvenile justice program, I um, I came out and I, I did general felonies for about a year. And uh, but then I quickly transitioned and was uh, assigned to sexual assault unit and the child abuse um, cases. So and I've been doing those since. So I've almost throughout the totality of my career have had um, kind of protection of children as a key component to my career. And uh, that's just been, you know, very rewarding for me. And, but again, I don't think it's for everyone because it is really tough. It is. Really I would tough. imagine you, you would have to maintain a certain temperament in that because it would get, it would become very easy to be jaded seeing all of those cases, especially sexual assault cases. Right. And just seeing that and having to deal with, like these are the only cases you're getting. That would be a hard, a hard pill to swallow. Yes, it's it's. I mean, in the sense that it could it could break you down seeing that side of humanity repeatedly like that. Yeah, and you know, I mean, vicarious trauma is a real thing. You know, as you're exposed more and more to other people's trauma and tragedy, that that can have an impact. You know, on uh, folks that try to be aware of that. Um, and yeah, so there's. I, I mean, I don't kid myself. There's there's a cost to it, you know, um, but at the same time, there's a tremendous reward as well, you know, because I have had the opportunity to um, follow, you know, have cases where I, we were able to prosecute and we were able to, you know, take it the whole way and 
hold the offender, you know, appropriately accountable for the conduct, empower the victim, uh, give them a sense of justice. And really it's freedom, really. That's, that's what they get, you know, and to, to, to know that, oh, this isn't my responsibility. That was that other person that did this to me and they don't get to do that anymore. And they don't get to do it anymore because I'm standing up for myself and I'm letting everyone know exactly what they did and how it wasn't okay. And I, I, they take charge, right? And um, and to just see that growth and to see, you know, these kids, you know, find a sense of empowerment and a sense of safety and just move on with their lives. It's, oh, wow. Incredibly rewarding. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's insane. That's, I mean... It is an, it is a very important job because somebody has to do that, right? You don't want repeat offenders, especially out on the street. And ideally, you would want to stop people before they could get there, but we don't have that magic solution yet. But to give back to the victims and say, yes, there is justice, and yes, we can we can help you try to move forward from what happened. I think that is incredibly important. That's a story that is always uplifting when someone that did something wrong does have to own up to what they did and pay for that by whatever extent that measures up to, you know? Right. And I think as well with, um, in particular sexual assault cases, it's, it's so important when, uh, survivors are able to come forward and share, um, their experience, not always. And oftentimes it just doesn't, um, land itself where we are able to prosecute the case. They're super hard to prove. Um, but, when a survivor is able to come forward and share their experience, it makes it that much easier in the, you know, event that there's another victim or some other incident that's happened, because sometimes we'll, we're able to piece those together and build a, a stronger case, you know. So I, um, for example, one of my last uh, jury trials involved uh, an offender, Michael Flowers, who he. Um, was paroled to Humboldt County after being released following uh, convictions and having been sentenced to serve a 50-year sentence for um, uh, sexual molestation of his stepdaughters, as well as the attempted um, murder of his um, then-wife, who was the mother of the children he victimized. Um, Crazy story. Uh, You know, the little girls back in the day shared with their mom, uh, why they were having some, some troubles, um, and disclosed, you know, that he had been abusing them. And he, um, while the mom was having the conversation with her little girls, he was on the other side of a door listening. So when the mom opened the door, he was there listening. Um, and she, you know, close in time ended up going to uh, law enforcement, making a report. Um, he went on the run, she went back to the family uh, home to get some of her belongings, and he had snuck back into the home and was hiding behind the door. So when she came through the front door, he struck her on the back of the head, knocked her unconscious, um, and then she went in and out of consciousness and enough that she recalled his dragging her back into a bedroom. And then um, and he, all the while, was telling her many horrific things that he was going to do to her. He um, then uh, put lighter fluid or gasoline throughout the house and um, ended up lighting the house on fire, leaving her on the bed semi-unconscious. And uh, 
but she she awoke and was able to um, crawl and she crawled out a window and escaped uh, from the burning house and <laughs> to the neighbors and the neighbors then called um, the police and then there was a really massive manhunt and they ended up uh, finding him the the woman that he um, had left in the burning house she survived and um, her daughters also survived but they lived in terror. And when he was released from prison and paroled after serving just about half of his, around about half of his 50-year sentence, um, they had reached out because they were um, still quite afraid of him. And um, Mr. Flowers then reoffended, and he um, raped a, a young woman who was in her 20s and who um, had her own life struggles. She had a, a little girl of her own and was somewhat transient and probably struggled with some addiction issues and uh, she was essentially sold uh, to Mr. Flowers against her will and uh, he uh, brutal, brutally raped her um, and the Rio Dale Police Department learned, got word that this had happened and uh, they reached out and were able to get enough trust of this you know, um, 20, 20 something year old young woman and um, yeah so we were able to file charges and um, able to give her enough support that um, she was able to get through the whole trial process. And she testified and um, the little girls that he had sexually abused, um, you know, nearly 30 years earlier, um, he, um, they testified during the trial. So that's just a really good example of how earlier reports or earlier incidences can become very significant, you know, during the course in our ability to prove um, more recent incidences. And it might be that um, if the jurors hadn't had the opportunity to hear about Mr. Flowers's history of, frankly, it was rape. He raped those little girls um, that they might not have uh you know, found the case to have been proven beyond a reasonable doubt for the more recent rape in part, you know, with this young woman having, you know, some life challenges that, um, you know, and it might've been more his word versus her word type of a situation. So I just really, uh, want to applaud all survivors that are, um, brave enough to come forward and, uh, work with law enforcement and work with us and, and I, you know, I do acknowledge that we're not always able to proceed, you know, in the moment on charges, but it's, it's just so very important that people are able to, to do that and come forward. Is that hard for you to hear about cases like that, especially where somebody commits a horrendous crime and then maybe goes away for a small amount of time and then comes back out and does something else? And you're like, we put this guy away for that reason because we knew something like this would happen again and he got out and then especially you hear about all the releases from like the county jail where we just don't have enough room so people are getting released and then they commit a crime and then they go right back in and then they that cycle just continues is that hard for yes. you as a prosecutor to hear that yes it's extremely hard and for that flowers example I, I will never understand the math. I do not understand and will never understand how he was sentenced to 50 years and just around 25 years he's out back out on the streets. That makes absolutely no sense to me. Um, you know, there are 
scenarios where um, offend other types of offenses, folks are given you know day for day credit. So uh, a three year sentence really is a year and a half. And then you know like with COVID, there were all of these other you know early release, and so um, yeah, it's really hard. And I have uh, you know sexual molestation child victims where part of the reason we'll enter into plea agreements short of going to trial is to, you know, spare them of the the potential trauma of going through and having to testify about, um, you know, horrific acts and sometimes, you know, very personal acts and things, you know, that, um, you don't really want to rehash. Yeah. In, you don't want to rehash in public. And I mean, it, it's just, you know, understandable, right. Completely. Very, very much so. And so that's one of the advantages. And then also the sense of like, okay, if we reach this agreement, we know what will happen. Whereas if we go to jury trial, no matter how strong of a case, there's always some risk that, you know, not all convictions will be sustained. And then we don't know how the judge, sometimes, you know, it's, it's mandated by law, but we don't know exactly what the sentence might be. So there's some degree of risk. And also it's, um, you know, often beneficial to have an earlier resolution. And so one of the things that we oftentimes talk with, in particular child victims, is, well, you know, where where do we want to have you in your life, you know, when this person might re-enter the community? Uh, that's something we'll we'll discuss. And, you know, oftentimes the kids, you know, they want to be adults. They want to be, okay, I, I would be about in college by then. So that's part of, you know, the calculation if we're going to come up with some sort of determinate term, like specific number. And this is a discussion where, say, if an offender might be um, looking at a life sentence or, you know, a high exposure. Um, and, okay, so so we've had those discussions, and then maybe there's an agreement that's reached, and everyone is at peace with it, and it's, you know, a just resolution, and the offender's, you know, sent off to prison. I have more than one um, case where, you know, the mom of the victim or survivor, they'll, they'll look every single day. What's the um, earliest parole release date? Oh, just checking the status for, the, for it. Mm -hmm. oh. and, um, and then, you know, with the COVID and some of the other changes and sort of um, release protocols, they've, you know, the board of um, parole, different changes, those numbers you know, we're declining. And, and that's something that historically we wouldn't have seen, particularly with child molest cases. And that just breaks my heart, you know, to think of being a mom. It's like, oh, well, I thought, I thought my daughter would be, you know, 25 when he was going to get out. And now ooh, she might only be, you know, 23 or, you know, something like that. And, and, um, I don't know that the general public, you know, appreciates that, um, you know, what some of these families go through and it's, a uh, yeah. Well, you can, you can empathize, empathize, but you, to put yourself in that position is, is something that is near impossible until you're actually in that situation. I think you can kind of, you can see it from an outside perspective and recognize, oh my God, it's, it's horrible. And, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine how you're feeling, but you, you really can't imagine how they're feeling, even if you try to. I think that's just so detached from most people's lives until you're thrust into that situation of, oh, this actually happened now, and this is this is where we are, and right. this is our reality. But 
Do you think that that's just, is that a f- knock on the system? Is the system falling apart for those victims or is it just? Oh, I think, I think that's a system failure. I think that, you know, that's when they're told a number and we're told a number and that's what the laws say. I think that's how long that individual should uh, be serving time for. Yeah. And had that been, had those sentences been getting reduced prior to COVID or did COVID really exacerbate that? I think COVID exacerbated it um, to a certain extent. And I think that, um, and then it just kind of depends a little bit on the, um, who who's making those decisions and sort of the priorities. Who gets the ultimate say in that? Is it the judge that handled the case well, or is there a board that oversees? Yeah. So it's, so the governor can make changes. There can be um, board of parole uh, decisions. The, the, the warden, you know, so once the um, individuals um, sent to prison and has been sentenced to a certain extent, um, the sentencing court, you know, loses jurisdiction, if you will, over how that time is actually served. But historically, um, in for more serious violent offenses, those sentences, you know, will be served as is. But then there can be certain special circumstances and, um, you know, emergency legislation and, you know, that that can end up causing some earlier uh releases and we saw a lot of that um recently there's been a a tremendous trend you know for um lower levels of incarceration of folks and um and sometimes that can be that can be appropriate you know um yeah if it's a drug somebody was dealing weed i would understand that they would get released but lower level i would consider like child molestation i would not consider that lower level you know so you hear about them (laughs) reducing those charges it's like well okay now we're is that really lower level i mean should we no yeah right (laughs) yeah it's not Um, so you know do you get frustrated with that because i'm over here and i get i'm listening to that of course i get frustrated and that's why i think it's really important to have people you know continuing to, to fight against that you know and um so it's like just because other decision makers are leaning one way it doesn't mean we don't continue to fight and continue to to make our voice heard we're not always going to get what we want you know but we have to stand up for what's right in the case of that child molestation case where he only served 25 of the 50 is 25 in that case was 25 the minimum that he had to or that's just I don't, even, that he's, I don't know. even know how that, how that happened. Mm-hmm. That just, just like I say, I can't, I can't, I don't understand that. Nobody could explain it. It's pretty crazy hearing and, that. Yeah. And nobody could explain it to the victims. I couldn't, I, you know, I don't, I doubt that the uh, prosecutor that entered into that agreement, you know, year, years past in an entirely different County. I bet that prosecutor would never have guessed that that would have happened. But, you know, it might have been related to Mr. Flowers. You know, he was getting older, but obviously not too old to rape again. That is so crazy. And of a 50-year sentence to only have to serve half. Yeah. For something that severe. Yeah. In the first place is kind of outrageous. Yes. (laughs) Wow. 
I when you hear that, especially from an outside perspective like mine, obviously I'm not in your world, um, thankfully, um, or at least not on the receiving <laughs> end, thankfully, I should say. But it it almost degrades your faith in the system a little bit. You hear that and you're like, well, how is that justice? How is that helping anybody? And I mean, I have my own gripes with the prison system as a whole. I don't think it's structured around rehabilitation. I think it's... Right structured around punishment you did the crime and now we're going to punish you until we deem your punishment has been enough such that you can be released and i have my own that is a whole other ball game yeah um but if you do something like that i mean there, ha- there has to be a consequence and to not have to serve your consequence well then what are we what are we doing what is the point of any of that and so i can only imagine being in the being that child or being one of the parents of that child and then kind of getting slapped in the face with that would just be just be unimaginable. Yeah. On top of the fact that they truly lived in fear. Yeah. I mean, on top of what on top attempted. of what happened right. and then yeah. They they truly believed he would try to find them and kill them. Legitimately so, you know. That's a I would imagine those are the kind of cases that keep you up at night when they <laughs> when it comes back to that and you're just like, What? What? What happened? Where did we, where did this all go wrong? Well, the good news is he's uh, in prison oh, he's, serving life. Oh, back now. Okay. Yeah. So on a life because charge. Because he was convicted on Again, the, the, on that second one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you, so if you get a life conviction, is there any chance of that being reduced? Well, like, most life sentences are um, X number of years to life. Oh, Okay. And you might be able to be eligible for parole. So, and then that's, you know, the parole board that makes those decisions, looking at all the circumstances, you know, the underlying offense, input from the victims, survivors, as well as, you know, what he or she might have done during their time in prison, um, you know, whether they're demonstrating remorse, you know, some degree of rehabilitation. There are programs, you know, for folks when they're in prison and it, it, it depends, you know, on where they're housed and what's available and what, you know, resources they take advantage of. Um, I have no doubt that there's a lot of room for improvement in that as well. And I think I probably, you know, um, I don't, well, I don't know how you feel, but, uh, you know, I can say that um, I feel that I think it would be, you know, beneficial to have good services and, you know, build, you know, skills and, teach empathy and, you know, have those conversations. So ideally, you know, when uh, folks that have served time, when they come back to the community, they're, they're um, more productive, you know, grounded citizens. That's how does that not benefit everyone, you know, and hopefully, you know, they will have other opportunities to in life other than engaging in criminal conduct, you know, so, um, so I think that's kind of a win for win for all if we put our monies and resources in that direction. And, you know, most that go through the criminal justice system don't find themselves in prison. It really is, you know, um, a, a smaller portion segment of that um, population of offenders that sadly do need to be removed from society to protect uh, the public. Yeah, I mean, they sh- you want them to... The theory of prison is, 
ideal, where you go away, you do your time, you rehabilitate, and you come out a better person than you went in. That's the theory, the right? The theory, right. And that's what we all would like to believe happens, and in a perfect world, that would happen. But I, I think to say that rehabilitation occurs in prison would almost be laughable to some extent. For most of the inmates, I don't think there's any rehabil- rehabilitation. I think it's survival yeah. to some extent, and then you you just put in your time and you come out and then you either recommit something and go back in and then that's your life. Some of them want to go back, which is hard to believe that that would be preferable to being out, but I get it, you know, structure and at least in there, you would have your daily routine and you would know what's acceptable and what's not. Right. But the idea that we shouldn't be trying to help them is crazy because we should, we should want everyone to be better. We should want, these people to get help so that they don't ever do anything like that again but it that's not not the reality yeah and so there's always you know but again i think it's important to not give up you know yeah. and like well if you give up then it's and, lost well, right yeah so you know yeah <laughs> i don't know what do you think about one of the things you hear and i'm sure it's very infrequent that this occurs but you hear about in reference to like DAs is it's all about the numbers, right? So you never take a case that you can't win because you want to get your prosecution rate high and things like that. Is that, does that actually occur? I'm not saying that it occurs in your department or anything like that, but does that, have you heard stories of that actually occurring or is Um, it hard to swallow that knowing that that does occur? Yeah, it is. It is hard to swallow that. And I, I've heard of stories of that occurring. And when I hear that, I always think I, I couldn't have done that. I would, you know, I probably would have changed my um, career early on if that's what it was about. And it's it's only now <laughs> doing um, running, you know, for DA that I've had that question presented to me like, oh, well, it's, what's your trial record? And it's like, oh, wow. OK, I did not keep <laughs> trial because to me, it's like it's that's a, a good win. sign. Hearing you say that is a good sign. Yeah, it's like it's like I'm successful if I've presented all the admissible evidence, you know, I've supported the victims and survivors. I've you know, applied the the evidence, the facts to the law, made a good argument to the jurors. Now, now it's in their hands, you know. And so to me, that's a, a successful prosecution. And, um, you know, and justice isn't based on number of convictions by any means, you know. Um, I think that if I were a prosecutor who didn't sustain convictions, then I would have to begin to wonder if I was in the right profession, you know. But, um but yeah, so I didn't, I didn't keep, um, personally didn't keep, uh, act, you know, records of all of my wins, but I, I do recall, um, you know, the one time that, uh, a judge came back and didn't find, and it was a juvenile case and it was a child molest case. And, um, it, that was really tragic because I really believed the little girl who, um, had made a very good disclosure to her mom early on and just basically, adults failed her throughout. And, um, so that I, I recall that very, very well. And, um, but yeah, it's not, it's not about the numbers in, in my mind. Um, but I think it's, you know, you have to be kind of aware of if you're consistently losing. Yeah. That's kind of a warning sign. (laughs) If you're not winning any cases. But, um, but yeah, and, and it's the same. And I don't think you should take cases to trial just because, oh, this is a slam dunk and I'm going to get a win. I mean, I think that would be unethical, mm-hmm. frankly. 
With that little girl, was that the case was tossed out by the judge? What was? Well, it was a um, little girl who um, her mom struggled with her own addiction issues, and the mom had taken her, the little girl, over to a, a house, and um, and the mom was I don't know what she was doing, whatever her business she had at that particular house. There was also a, a teenage boy, older teenager. I think he was about 17 and, um, he, um, had spent time with the, the, the little girl who was about four or five, uh, hadn't, the little girl wasn't yet in kindergarten. And, um, so after being at the house, the, um, little girl told her mom that bad things had happened and, uh, the mom didn't take any action, didn't, you know, um, make a report to law enforcement she didn't question anyone or anything and and that was you know early in the summer like may june ish um and so a few months passed and then the mom had to take her daughter for a well child checkup so she could go into kindergarten and uh at the well child checkup um the mom asked the uh the doctor to take a look to see if there had been and she used very crass language, um, and the doctor had made note of it in her um, um, in her notes, and um, and the doctor wasn't, you know, a specially trained sexual assault examiner or anything along those lines. Um, and you know, from um, her perspective, things seemed appeared normal, um, no indication of, uh, of abuse, which would be completely consistent with what had happened with, with the child that you wouldn't, we wouldn't expect to see anything. Um, and so, uh, the doctor who had recently, um, come to California from out of state, and I don't recall at the top of my, uh, head where she had previously practiced, wasn't aware of the mandated, uh, reporting laws that we had in California and she didn't report it. She should have, based on what the mom had told her. And uh, so a number of months passed again with no action taking place. And the little girl made a disclosure at school close in time to Christmas. And it was just, I think, just before the um, winter break. And uh, But thankfully, uh, that uh, teacher's aide uh, knew the mandated reporter laws and uh, a report was made. And that ultimately triggered the law enforcement investigation. The little girl was brought to um, the child abuse services team uh, forensic interviewing office, and she was interviewed, and she gave a really detailed statement of what had happened to her in the teenage boy's room. And she also gave um, detail, and what I remember um, her sharing was that um, she knew where he kept his, I think she called it... um, man jelly. <laughs> and when a search warrant was subsequently served at his residence and in his room, and there was lubricant, uh, like KY jelly found exactly where, uh, the little girl had said it had come from, which corroborated her, her statement. Um, and there were other things that did as well. One of the things that the interviewer asked, and we don't do this any longer is that the interviewer asked how many times did he do this? And she said, Oh, millions. Because in her mind, it was that because he, without giving you too much detail, but um, 
yeah, it, it was it was more than once and a lot more than once because of what was happening to her. And um, and the court found uh, that that statement in particular wasn't credible and ultimately found that there wasn't enough evidence, you know, to prove the charge beyond a reasonable doubt. I remember during um, when the little girl was testifying and talking about what had happened to her and describing um, and and when she um, meant to say penis, she said peanut and her mom was in the audience and started laughing. And I remember keeping a smile on my face with, as I'm directing towards the little girl and walking backwards and leaning down to the mom and having to admonish her based on her behavior as her little girls testifying about the sexual abuse that she endured. Yeah. So um, I remember that because the court didn't find that it was proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And... Um, Primarily based on those two, those two things. That was yeah, enough. and I think that if the, um, you know, if people, if the adults in her life had um, acted in a protective manner, that I think the results would have been different. You know, and because the investigation would have been uh, much earlier in time, um, there probably would have been findings. Um, and because of the passage of time and the healing of the body, you wouldn't expect to find necessarily um, any evidence. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so it's just, you know, so I remember that. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I've had um, a lot of, you know, um, successes in terms of my prosecutions. And I think that my uh, trial record, what, you know, why I'm proud of it is not so I can say, oh, I have this many convictions, because um, that's not really consistent with who I am and what I value. But it's like, wow, those those are um, cases where, you know, survivors found their justice. And that's what makes me feel good, proud, proud of them. Yeah. You know. How old was that girl? Uh, the, that, the, that little girl. For that, she, well, she was pre-kindergarten. So she was like four or five. Yeah. Wow. She was a little. Did she go back to the mom or did CPS step in or? See, uh, yeah, Child Welfare Services was involved in the life, but her her life. But, you know, I don't know ultimately what um, happened. What happened. And and so it was. But I know that there were, you know, there was some degree of inner intervention. And then also um, because the doctor's failure you know, to make a mandated report, that was a big issue during the course of the trial. And so it sort of shifted the, the, a lot of it, um, from, you know, the actual offender, um, to the doctor. <laughs> to the doctor. And, um, so, you know, that was part of the challenge as well. And, and then also because of the passage of time, although the little girl knew, you know, where the lube was which is that seems like that, that like, would be a that would that be a is, slam dunk right there because why yeah. sh- why would a four-year-old know where uh, right this... the, yeah and i remember she called it the man jelly <laughs> but um she um but the the layout of some of the things he had changed some of the things in his room like there was something about tv and i just don't remember like he had a tv and then no longer had the tv or something but it was i you know it was a trial. So it's like oftentimes all the issues, you know, become a little convoluted. And, um, but 
Yeah, and I, I think that was the first time the defense also tried to present um, that, you know, the the little girl was suggestive. That happens with these types of cases where you have these littles, and sometimes that's the defense that comes up. Like, well, she was, you know, coming on to me. I'm or sorry. Four years old. I'm that's, sorry. That's what so, the defense yeah. tried to say? And so I, I remember learning the laws, the protective laws, where the defense can't do that type of line of questioning absent a specific order of the court. So I remember that was one of the first times I filed that motion to protect the child in that regard. But who would think, right, for who a four or five-year-old? argue that? So that was – I remember that issue for that particular trial as well. Mm-hmm. Do you – had you oh, – wow. Um, I can't imagine trying to be the defense attorney in that situation. How you – I mean, not to pass judgment on him, I get that, you know, he, well, I'm not going to pretend to know how he felt in that moment or do that, but, I mean, that must, like, how do you, how do you stand up for this person and say, nope, this is, they didn't do this, and then make the suggestion that, oh, it was the four-year-old's fault that she was trying to come on to this 17-year-old. I mean, what is the line of thinking with that? I think, obviously, everyone should have an attorney, but, I mean, hearing that is just... Yeah, I mean, is it is it important protection yes, of yes. our rights? Especially so we if all want you're innocent our... <laughs> in a different situation, <laughs> yeah. right? Everybody should have right. an attorney because right. that's your best bet to protect yeah. yourself. But wow! I, but you know, I mean, it's tough. It's tough to. And there are some. And this was a private attorney, and I'm not going to name names, but um, you know, I and there are some private, you know, defense attorneys who just they won't take those types of cases for those reasons um but it's important that somebody does yeah so i mean somebody has to right but it's just i would not want to be that person that would be hard to separate how you feel personally from defending your client for sure Mm -hmm. yeah i'm sure that's a big challenge so (laughs) wow i i can't imagine that case is ever gonna not stick with you that you'll just carry that for not because of anything you did, but just the case. I mean, just hearing that, like, I feel like I'm, that's going to stick with me now. For... Yeah. And another one that has stuck with me, um, I hope I'm not going to traumatize you now. But... <laughs> no, I think it's important that people hear that. Think... <laughs> but um, a, a little boy who, um, you know, the, the family home had, was out kind of out in the woods and sort of, you know, from a lot of perspectives, kind of living the the dream rural life, you know, and, um, and that little boy disclosed that his older siblings had, um, um, sexually molested him and he, um, he wasn't believed by his, uh, care providers. It was a mom and stepdad. And, um, to the extent that he ultimately ended up in foster care himself. And I remember one of the things that had, uh, happened was the stepfather had told the little boy that, um, if he didn't stop his lying, he was going to be taking him to Alaska and leave him in the forest. And it was this very detailed, you know, um, explanation for, for what this, what was going to happen to this child. So he, um, um, I remember his first name, but I want to protect his confidentiality. But um, I'll call him Lil E. Um, so 
little E was completely removed. You know, he lost his brothers. He lost his mom. He lost, you know, his stepdad, his home, um, put into foster care, interviewed, um, went through the whole process and we went to trial on it. And, um, the brothers, they, um, they testified as well. And, uh, but at the end of that particular trial, after the little boy testified about what had happened to him, and uh, he was consistent with what he had shared you know, previously during the uh, cast forensic interview, he then, um, the court, that was a court trial as well, and the court found that it was proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Also, a private defense attorney, a different private defense attorney, uh, representing um, the perpetrator in that case uh and what was i thought particularly remarkable is after the court made his finding of truth as to the abuse having happened the um the case was uh, scheduled for you know sentencing it was called disposition but the defense attorney um let us know that the two boys that had testified against the victim uh, had some words for the court and they apologized for lying, which that was pretty cool. Full circle too. You know, um, that little boy was, you know, um, he was heard and he was supported. And at the end of the day, um, he, he had his justice despite the fact that everyone in his life that should have been protecting him, you know, failed to do so. And so that was, I'll, I'll remember little E too. Is that yeah. pretty common in those juvenile sexual assault cases where the parents almost try to cover it up or not cover it up, but try to sweep it under the rug and play it off as, Oh, that, that didn't really happen. You're just imagining. Cause I've heard that in my personal life from friends as I've grown up hearing these cases of things that have happened and it just kind of gets not not ignored, but like, oh, we don't, we don't talk about that like that. Yeah. It's a really uncomfortable thing to accept. Yeah. And, and here, you know, oftentimes it's in the, within the family home and, uh, conflicting interests. And, and I think strangely, maybe denial, you know, is feels to the parents or care providers as a, the safer choice, you know, and they don't really know what happened. Um, but I, I see both, of course, you know, and we have had some where, um, where the parents are, are protective, you know, now I'm thinking of an entirely different case where, um, a little girl was sexually assaulted by her older brother and the mom, um, learned of it. And she also was, a, a um, She's, she has her own life challenges. So she has, you know, a history of addiction. She um, was sexually abused herself, um, lots of challenges. But nonetheless, um, she w- had the strength and fortitude to do the right thing and make the report um, regarding what had happened to her little girl. And uh, so her, um, her son was prosecuted uh, as a juvenile. And he... Um, and it was, you know, pretty serious levels of intervention um, and treatment and, you know, lockdown type treatment uh, that occurred uh, to address his behaviors. 
as an adult, he reoffended and um, victimized a little neighbor girl. And at that trial, we brought back, I brought back the mom from the first victim and she testified again against her own son, understanding that he needed to be held accountable and that other children were at risk if he wasn't. And, but you know, that was not an easy thing for her to do by any means, but she stood up and she did it. So, um, yeah. Wow. That is a testament for her to be able to, to do that. I mean, that's, that's horrible. I mean, is it, it's bad enough that it happens to your child and then to have your child be the one that does it to your other child right. is, is, is pretty hard to grasp. And I would imagine even harder to grasp as, as the parent of those two children. Right. How do you find balance in, in your personal life when you come across cases like that? Mm-hmm. I mean, does that, I would imagine your work follows you home or do you maintain boundaries pretty well in that regard? And you can kind of tuck it away and say, no, this is not, this is work. I like, how do you decompress? How do you not let that swallow you up? I guess. Um, yeah. So early on in my career, I, I had to learn to, to build better boundaries for myself, I think, because early on I would, um, take some of that home and I want it. It's like, cause it was, I, I couldn't believe the things I was learning and they were real, you know? And um, a lot of horrific horror and tragedy and trauma. And so sometimes I felt like, oh, I really need to talk about this. And then I quickly learned, like, looking at my husband's face, that this is so unfair to him. And it's really not making me feel any better. And and so I, I learned from that that I, I really needed to not bring that home. Um, sometimes if I'm in trial the reality is I do have to physically bring my work home mm. and, you know, what I'll try to do in those instances is get up really early in the mornings. And, you know, it's like, I do that on my own. I am careful not to, you know, expose, um, my, my family to, um, much of any of that. And, um, for lots of reasons, but, um, it's not always easy. And as my kids got older, uh, they started to figure out a little bit more about what I do. And uh, <laughs> I remember my oldest daughter asking me, um, and we were just outside the courthouse, and she probably realized, oh, that's where mom works. And she she turned to me and she said, you know, mom, do some people not appreciate having to go to jail? Like maybe they don't know that it's good for them. You know, <laughs> she was just like starting to figure out that like perhaps there's, you know, some – uh, criminal defendants that might not be so pleased with yeah, not what, happy. what mom asked. <laughs> yeah, happen, don't really want to go know? to jail. Yeah. And, you know, so that was like, oh, okay. She's starting to get a sense of, you know, what I do and that maybe, maybe not everyone in the community is going to be quite so appreciative of that. And, and that there could be a very real, you know, risk. Right. Um, so I live a very private life previously <laughs> prior to doing the podcast you got you had it it was going so well and we're then you good, come on here and I, I ruined we're it good. but um so so that was part of it and um you know and just really I I do love the outdoors and that helps me a lot just like I love going to the beach and having like you know I actually 
haven't had as much, you know, um, free time, if you will. But, you know, on Sunday, I was like, I, I need to do this, you know. And so that recharges me. And then I think exercise is super um, oh, absolutely. important. And I also, um, you know, I, I don't use drugs or alcohol. And I think that's a really important part, too, just to maintain my, my mental and physical health. Um, and so have other healthy outlets, you know, because a lot of, sadly, a lot of lawyers do actually, you know, end up finding themselves with, you know, some pretty significant um, substance and abuse issues. And I don't, I don't want to go there. Um, so those are just kind of some personal choices that I make, um, and trying to also model for my, for my family, you know, healthy ways to, to deal. And, um, yeah. (laughs) Did it make you more guarded? I don't know how old your children are, but did it make you more guarded of them going into these cases and hearing about what people are capable of you almost just want to shut them in the house and say okay we're not going anywhere we're just gonna everybody's homeschooled now we're staying at home yes absolutely um and it's it's it still does i mean they're um you know they're still i have 17 15 and a 12 year old all girls and um yeah i i'm a protective mom but it's also you know important for them to be socialized and, yeah. and so they yes they do go to school and um but but yeah I probably have different talks that may be different from what my own parents you know had with me and I'm I'm you know my parents were a little more um cryptic I guess you know um <laughs> my my kids knew their body parts uh-huh. you know? <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> so you know it's <laughs> that's good I think that's important to have healthy communication with your kids and be able to talk to them and have them know that they can always come to you and talk and, and be open and nothing's a secret. And if anybody asks you to keep secrets, that's when you come to yeah. talk to us. Like, <laughs> I think that's very healthy communication is always a good thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's good. I think especially working out, that's my go-to is just working out. I feel like that's a great way, especially just to clear your head of everything. You can just kind of work through it all and going outdoors is also a great alternative i love i'm a big outdoor guy too so yeah, I, I can yeah. i can empathize with that for sure yeah i think that helps and especially for you where you you kind of need that balance to maintain a clear perspective i think that's good to hear right keeps us grounded yeah and yeah you don't want to you don't want to be that person that slips into the bottle because it seems like that would be easy to do when you're faced with the gravity of all of this that you starts with a couple drinks after work and then you just some people can't maintain that balance and you you just tip into the tip off the edge yeah yeah i just like to um keep it real and you know i like to have control and uh know what i'm dealing with so oh that's good (laughs) um and so the election is in june right and do you have anything that you're setting out to achieve as DA or you just want to maintain? Because it sounds like you've, you've got a clear head. You, you, it, I'm, I'm happy to hear what we've talked about because it sounds like you are one of the DAs that's like, no, like I'm doing this because I, I'm passionate about the work that I'm doing and I want to make an impact and I want to help these people who have been wronged. Is that kind of just your MO going into the DA position is just I want to continue this and help make Humboldt County a better place? 
Right. So I would, um, you know, just kind of backing up to, I, you know, I was good. I had a private life, you know. Yeah, you're definitely <laughs> and, going to be more um, in the public eye now, I yeah, would imagine, as, as the head of the organization. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I really, it, once Maggie uh, decided that she did not want to uh, run for another, you know, go for another term, then uh, she asked me if I would consider, you know, running. And, you know, much like, you know, counting my convictions, I hadn't really looked at myself that way. And and so when I started to do that and look around, it's like, wow, I, I truly am uniquely qualified to do this job. She also, um, I've worked as her assistant district attorney, so it's a different role than um, all the other prosecutors in our office are deputy district attorney, so it's assistant it's um, Maggie, then myself. And so if Maggie's not available, then people go to me, you know. And so I work on personnel issues, budget issues, overall administration of the office with Maggie, in addition to running our um, sexual assault and child abuse unit. Uh, so you've been kind of unit. almost perfectly groomed for the role. Right. Kind of step into it, a right. natural fit. Yeah. And so that coupled with, you know, over 20 years of experience within the office, I'm not going to change who I am. And the fact that I am passionate about, you know, um, serving our community and ensuring that victims' rights are uh, protected as well as those of, you know, the accused. And so I am not going to change any of that in any any way. I think it's important to continue to put a lot of resources in the child abuse and sexual assault crimes. So I'm what's considered a vertical prosecutor. So I have those types of cases from inception to the end. So, you know, sentencing and beyond. Um, And then we have other vertical prosecution units as well. So we have um, for domestic violence, elder abuse, um, the drug task force crimes, and then all of our homicide crimes are also um, prosecuted vertically. So as soon as the we're aware of the case, we have a prosecutor that's assigned that will work with the the families, you know, from the beginning. And to they end. stick with it throughout. Yeah, the whole process. and so oh, it's that's just, cool. Yeah, it's really really important so that there's consistency as well as, you know, um, I I just can't imagine you know being in the shoes of um, some of the the family members, you know, or uh, loved ones of um, some of our homicide victims. And so to have the same prosecutor working throughout and on the case is really important and also working with the investi- uh, investigating agency. So everyone's on the same page and from the beginning to the end. So we really try to maintain that. So those things I will continue to do as well. I think that um, one of the goals that I have is to have additional, you know, public outreach and to continue to hear the voices of community members across all of Humboldt. And I want to be aware of what are the public safety concerns, issues, why don't you feel safe here in your neighborhood? What's happening here? What are the problems? You know, what what are the police telling you when they respond? Are they, you know, um, investigating the report? Are they taking reports? Um, are there, you know, and then the other thing, so I think that's really important. And I want to heighten that opportunity. I d- might uh, do it in some sort of public forum, like have some sort of town hall type meetings, invite folks to come. I want to go to different communities and speak with people. And so 
this process of campaigning has really given me uh, a lot of exposure to even more of our public. And it's awesome. It's really cool to actually see all the people that are really invested and care about Humble and have different ideas. So I want to hear those and I want to put um, as much into action as I can. And I also want to work um, kind of more on the front end. Like you mentioned earlier, ideally, you know, it's prevent the crime before it actually happens. And so obviously, I don't know, obviously, but, you know, I think um, we see on a daily basis, you know, folks, sadly, that um, mental health issues, substance abuse, drug issues, sometimes there's, you know, um, dual diagnosis type, you know, um, uh, folks that might then, you know, be more inclined, more inclined to engage in conduct. Yeah, that's going to land them in the criminal justice system. Why it would be much better to address those issues earlier on so that nobody gets hurt, you mm-hmm. know, and and that maybe we can help them um, with their underlying issues. And so I'm really interested in being more engaged with service providers. And, um, you know, I actually had the chance to um, go to the uh, emergency department the other day and do a tour um, and sort of see what's, what's happening there and the number of folks with behavioral um, mental health issues that are sort of going and they're being left at the emergency room and, and that's really not the place for those folks. And so it's um, in the moment, urgent crises type situation. And so those are things that I really think that um, it's important for the district attorney to be involved and at the table, even if it's not like statutorily my jurisdiction, mm-hmm. I want to kind be of there be a part of and it. to support that and to know what's going on. Did you have any reservations about running and about stepping into the public eye of, of everything, just putting your face out there? Did you have any reservations about assuming the position? Uh, absolutely. Um, because I am a private person and, you know, uh, although I'm a trial lawyer and I'm, you know, speaking in public all the time, I'm not speaking about myself. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's very um, challenging to like try to talk about yourself, you know, when that's, you know, I'd rather not. And yeah. um, so, so that's just, there's a lot of awkwardness <laughs> with all of that. And, um, but I feel like I've just gotten a lot of support and there's been a lot of positivity and people that are really, you know, helping me appreciate um, who I am, you know, after, you know, 20 years of returning to my home and, you know, just trying to do the best I can for the community. And and so because I am doing it for the community, I've kind of had to set aside my little personal fears and I'm just moving forward because I feel like there really is no other option and, I'm excited about it. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy to tell that you're, you know, you're passionate about your job and it seems like you were excited to, to take this next step, even though there's a little fear of, of being in the public. And I understandably so, cause I can't imagine everyone that you put away is exactly happy to, <laughs> like kids were talking about to be rehabilitated. But, um, yeah, I'm excited to see where, where that goes for you for sure. I think that especially in the realm of, you know, law and what that entails. I think it's important to have people that are in it for the right reasons and are in it because they want to help and are passionate about doing that help and doing the work behind the scenes. And I think that it's clear to see that that stems to you, you know, that you were passionate about it. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Do you have anything else you want to add? Anything? Where can people find you? 
Oh, oh, sure. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I do have a website, and it's Stacy S T A C E Y Eads E A D S four D A, and that's a numeric four dot uh, com. So at my website, there's more information about who I am and my guiding principles um, in terms of you know really. For me, it's very important uh, that I continue to be who I am, which is I serve with integrity and I um, truly do believe in justice, you know, for all and ensuring that everyone's rights are well protected and, and um, you know, ensuring that I do my job to protect our uh, public from, from dangerousness, you know, and, um, and I'm very open to... Uh, providing rehabilitation and opportunity in those situations where it's appropriate and also hold offenders accountable. Property crime is another big one. We didn't really touch on that, um, but that's a, a big issue for folks and uh, holding repeat offenders accountable. And, you know, sometimes... Yeah, I would imagine they get released a lot. Right. And it's a big problem. Yeah. Know, people are understandably really fed up and we've had a lot of changes in our laws in terms of what the potential consequences are for um, a lot of the theft related offenses but nonetheless I, I do think it's imperative for law enforcement and the DAs to continue to convey that message of we will prosecute you will be held accountable stop stealing <laughs> well yeah you, you had know? those those smashing grabs all across the country where they just weren't getting prosecuted so they go and you know show up in 50 100 people and just bash windows and take stuff and right that's a problem yeah it's 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 a big problem and if you're uh, a person who's you know earning 15 dollars an hour and it's your window that gets smashed and your things that are stolen it's a huge problem yeah a small business owner just you're just trying to get by you didn't what did you do to deserve that right you know right so um these have real life impacts you know on folks and so I appreciate that, and I'm absolutely committed to prosecuting those crimes. I did want to ask, and I'm I'm not exactly familiarized with this case, so and I don't know if you are either, so feel free to shoot me down. But <laughs> are you familiar with the Josiah Lawson case at all? Um, well, peripherally. Per- okay, because I know in you know looking you up and trying to get a feel for you before we went into this, I knew that that was a a pretty big knock against Maggie. Um, and I wasn't sure if that was, I haven't done enough research to form an opinion yet on that. And I didn't know if you were adjacent to that case while she was going through that or trying to figure that out at all. So I, I have a lot of familiarity with it. I was never like assigned to it Mm -hmm. or immediately directly involved in the prosecution. Um, I know enough to know that it's horribly tragic and, I cannot imagine to be uh, Ms. Lawson and to have lost her son under those circumstances. And I'm aware that, you know, the case was taken to um, initially when uh, the first suspect um, was arrested. Uh, the, The case was filed and it went to preliminary hearing. And the judge found that there wasn't enough evidence to proceed, you know, past that point. And so the case was dismissed. Um, and then when there was a additional or slightly different evidence that was brought forward and the case was then taken to the grand jury, what was, uh, and they didn't find that there was enough evidence to proceed. What's really, um, important for the public to understand is that 
we have one more bite at the apple. So when there's sufficient evidence to take the case to trial, we have to get it beyond the preliminary hearing stage, you know, and then to trial. If it's if there isn't enough evidence and it gets dismissed at the preliminary hearing level again, it's done. It's dead in the water. Oh, you only so, have three opportunities. Well, because the grand jury isn't an actual dismissal. So there's only two dismissals that can happen, and then it's gone. So you get one dismissal, oh. and if it happens again, you're done, right? And so um, it's so it's preserved. So when there's enough evidence to proceed, and then we can still do that. And I think that's really, really important. So the, the way that procedurally it was handled in assessing the evidence and bringing it before triers of fact is, uh, was a protective measure that was done on the guidance and advice of many experts across the state. If elected district attorney, I would, and I haven't done this, but I would review all the evidence myself. I would invite the input of the attorney general's office, and they're actually reviewing the case, is my understanding, at this point in time. Um, so they might have additional resources or you know ways to look at whatever DNA analysis was provided. There have been other you know rumors of you know evidence that might be out there. There was you know if some of that comes forward. Um, and they're sufficient, I would absolutely proceed on the case. Um, you just have to make sure you're selective you so that you don't be, jump the gun on that. Exactly. You have to be very, very careful that there's sufficient evidence to do that um, and, you know, to to hold the murderer accountable. Yeah. And yeah. it's difficult in that situation. And I was talking to somebody about this the other day is that, you know, all those people that were around, I mean, somebody must have seen, it was a party, so I, somebody must have seen something, and it's hard to try to get. Right, and there have them. been lots of rumors, yeah. but until that, if there's that evidence and that information, yeah. we, you we guys can't proceed of, on hearsay yeah, your hands are rumors. Tied. We have to actually have the admissible evidence to proceed in court. And so it's really, it's really tough mm -hmm. and completely tragic. And, yeah. You know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I would. It was just that that had been a knock on Maggie, and I wasn't sure if that was warranted. Because you know, it's hard. I can imagine your job is hard in situations like that where the public wants this done, and they have their own preconceptions about how it should be done and how justice should be served and what that looks like. And you're here, like, well, we have to go. There's, you know, we have to work within the bounds of the law, and we need certain things so that we can check the boxes to actually get a conviction or get where we need to go with that. And if those two things don't quite line up, right. I can imagine there would be a little friction with the public. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think it's important for Ms. Lawson to know that I would be more than happy to meet with her and hear from her and work with her. And, you know, that's, I will do that. Okay. Well, do you have anything else you want to add? Um, can't think of a thing. Okay. Thank you I so mean, much. Yeah, no, it, I mean, we've been talking for a while now. Um, Stacy, I had a great time. I really, really enjoyed talking with you. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. It was fun. It was great to see your, yeah. your place here. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> it cool. was a blast. Um, best of luck on June 7th. And I Thank feel you. I feel a little more comfortable with the law situation, knowing that you are out there and there are people out there like you that are actually 
doing it for the right reasons and trying to trying to make an impact. That's always a comforting feeling. Thank you. So, yeah. It makes me feel good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks, guys. Thank you, Stacy. Thank you.